Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. This week, we're continuing the story from last episode, looking at how Denver is taking an innovative approach to addressing homelessness. If you haven't listened to the first show, you might want to download it and start there. But either way, let me offer up a quick refresher on what we covered. Like many other cities, Denver struggles with a big problem. Too many people are living on the street for too long. These individuals experiencing chronic homelessness often cycle from the streets to jail and emergency rooms back again. And homelessness is not just hard on these people, it's also really costly for the city. And let's be straight, jails and emergency rooms are never a long-term solution. Here's a man we call Malcolm on his experience with the cycle of chronic homelessness. Stability is... um thing that most people who are stable take for granted. When you're homeless, you're totally in survival mode. Where do I eat? Where do I sleep? Am I safe? When you're stable, those things matter, but not as urgent and not as, not as overwhelming. Looking to support individuals like Malcolm, Denver tested a new funding model. The problem of homelessness in Denver is one that doesn't seem to go away. So the city is trying something new by using a new funding mechanism called a social impact bond. Social impact bonds are also called pay-for-success projects, and they basically aim to align spending with better outcomes. Denver found investors, a few foundations and a private bank, to put money up front to pay for long-term supportive housing for 250 chronically homeless people. Supportive housing means that these people now have their own apartments with their own beds, as well as a case manager to help them stabilize in this new environment. So it's good for these folks, and ultimately, investors will also get repaid by the city if the program works and people stay in their apartments and don't end up back in jail. The social impact bond will have the city of Denver repay investors based on if the program is successful. The city only pays if a participant spends at least one year in housing while also staying out of jail. The reality is that getting anyone to change their behavior is difficult. It's true for individuals experiencing homelessness, and it's true for people working in government agencies and for service providers. And the Denver Social Impact Bond Project requires a lot of collaboration among these folks. Reggie Herter served as executive director of Denver's Crime Prevention and Control Commission and helped to push for collaboration across government silos. So that really, I think, was was getting people to take it that A, there was a population out there that we assumed was being served and wasn't. B, that those costs were astronomical and we could do something different with them. And C, is that they had part of the shared responsibility of doing that. They had part of the shared responsibility of setting up something differently and that there could be wins and benefits from doing that. So I think those were some of those outcomes, but the challenges was really getting people to believe that that they needed to do something for this population, and they didn't have to have a life of just flipping through the system. Denver leaders understood that an issue like homelessness is multi-layered and doesn't have just a single solution. Mayor Michael Hancock talked about this systemic approach. It's complex. It's a, a system to address it. Um, it's not as simple as some want to make it out to be. 
that it's just about affordable housing. It's much more than that, that it is a, it has to be a technical as well as an emotional, or, or I should say compassionate approach to it. One that is built with a lot of on and off ramps, um, depending on the individual. For every homeless person on the street, there's a, there has to be a tailored approach to them. So there's, there, it says a lot. And thankfully, there were a lot of smart people who really worked with us as a city to tailor our approach to this and so that we could be most helpful to the people who needed us the most. So once Denver had a plan for the program, how did the project partners take it from a concept to reality? The first step was that the Denver Police Department partnered with the Urban Institute to share their data. Whenever people with a history of frequent arrests had contact with police, the department flagged them for Urban as a potential program participant. Here's Sarah Gillespie of the Urban Institute on how this worked. So we get these daily automated reports from the Denver Police Department that tells us, you know, who on our list had a police contact or an arrest the day before and might be, you know, up for enrollment in the project. It turned out that more people were eligible for supportive housing than could be served. And for the program, this is a challenge because you want to be able to serve everyone. But for the researchers, this is a moment of opportunity. And here's why. It means that they can randomly assign people into two groups, one group that joins the supportive housing program and one that doesn't. Random assignment basically helps Urban to track outcomes to see how the program works. It's pretty much the gold standard for research. The key here is that because we have set this up as a randomized controlled trial, soon we will be able to compare what's going on with this group to what's going on with a group of their peers who have the exact same challenges um, and are in the exact same environment at the same time and what is going on with their time in jail and you know homelessness and all of those things. And we'll be able to compare those groups and say with certainty that what we see going on with this treatment group is because of supportive housing. Staff on the ground in Denver worked with local police, mental health co-responders, shelters, and others to find the people that made it on the list. Lisa Bryant, a clinical case manager with the Mental Health Center of Denver, helped out with this. I was in some interesting places. We, we, we did a lot of the shelters. We, we collaborated with a lot of the shelters and go in and, you know, we provide them names and you know, they could actually let us know if they were there or not or if they knew where they were at. We worked with a lot of the outreach people in the, show, uh, on the community to help us locate people. Lisa said sometimes people were skeptical that the offer of housing seemed too good to be true. Some people was really, it was quick and, you know, we were able to find them and, you know, and there was, I thank goodness the outreach people and the shelters had a good rapport with some of them and they would connect us really quickly. And then some of them, it took a while because they were very hesitant to come in and talk to us. There was a lot of, um, they thought it was a scam. They didn't think we were actually going to help them out. And, you know, they've had a lot of disappointments in the past, so they didn't believe what we were saying. And you can imagine people's surprise when they learned about the opportunity. Here's John, a participant in the program. Actually, a friend of mine had a case manager, and me and him were at the library. And he was having a, a meeting with her, and she goes, uh, do you know And I looked right at her, like, that's me. <laughs> I was in shock. I'm like, that's me. She goes, well, you won the lottery for the housing. And I'm like, really? I didn't even apply. And... uh she goes, well, going into St. Francis down the street here, you automatically get a, in the lottery or whatever. And uh, I said, well, I had no idea. I never even applied for housing or anything. 
So uh, they hooked me up with the first a hotel and and then another place that wasn't quite as nice as this. And then I finally ended up here, and I love this place. So once the team found participants and convinced them to take the step of living in supportive housing, the transition could still be complicated. Takesha Kesey, program manager at the Mental Health Center of Denver, works closely with the residents and, along with her team's other case managers, guides them through this adjustment. She says this takes serious time, commitment, and hard work. A lot of our SIP residents had been homeless for 10, 12, 15 years, long, long, long periods of time. And I think it was because, you know, they have learned to rely on themselves. And them kind of believing us in that sense was really tough. So it took a while to build some of that trust and rapport that, you know, will continue to be there. Takesha noted that each program participant has a different set of needs, and some require more services than others. You know, there's a lot of our individuals who need some basic, like, here's some help, here's a starter kit of food, this is a list of places you can go for, you know, this various resources. But then there's some that definitely need a, a higher level of support, just so really being able to gauge that. Developing the relationship with the case management team is just as key as imperative. And I think that that is just one of the things that's lacking. But I don't want to make it sound simplistic, but it is pretty simple. I mean, you you give somebody that cares, you know, that support and that, you know, hey, I'm here for you if you need. That is, is it opens doors. Mm-hmm. I mean... And for real, lasting change, like taking the step to improve their health through substance use treatment, teamwork is essential. There's great collaboration. You know, it takes, it takes a village, not just to raise a child, but also to, to do this kind of work because, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of sweat and blood and tears and, and all of us, you know, have their best interests at heart, but you know, we can't do it all as one team. Mm -hmm. And so we really do need the help of of everybody to make it work. So you have a sense of both the challenge of this work and the tremendous potential it has to change people's lives in meaningful ways. But let's talk some brass tacks, people. Four words really matter. Is this program working? After all, one thing that's so different about this project is that it looks at whether or not participants are better off as a result of the program or not. Why does that matter? Well, two reasons. One, when the five-year project ends in 2021, this will be one of the largest valuations of supportive housing ever, and it has the potential to shape future housing policy across the country. And two, findings from the evaluation will determine whether investors get their money back. So, Drumroll, please. Just what did Urban find? Well, the program has not concluded, but so far, the results are very positive. At this point, two and a half years into the program, 85% of participants have remained in housing without ever exiting the program. And during their first year in housing, just 56% of participants returned to jail. That probably seems high, but it's actually significantly lower than usual for this population. Here's Sarah from Urban again. 
So, I mean, our big finding is that people are getting in housing and staying in housing. And that's exciting because we know what was happening with these folks before supportive housing. And that wasn't the case, right? Even with lighter touches, even with maybe the provision of shorter term housing or services other than housing, these folks continued their cycle. It wasn't enough. And so the fact that supportive housing is what's getting them in housing and keeping them in housing is a big deal. So I think on all fronts, it's been just awesome to see what happens when pay for success does really just raise the bar on implementation and evaluation. As a result of these positive preliminary outcomes, private investors have already received more than a million dollars back from their initial investment of eight plus million. But here's even bigger news. Because of this early success, Denver is already increasing the number of units and funding available for supportive housing in the future. Denver is scaling up. Here's Mayor Michael Hancock again. Well, we're expanding it here in Denver, which I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see that it has been so effective with the first 250 chronically homeless that we're now serving 325 people in our, in our 2018 budget. We expanded it. We're going to continue to monitor and evaluate it. And just our goal is to keep it expanding so we can include more people in the program. Um, as long as we see the kind of results that we're seeing, I think it, it justifies our further investment in the effort. When we're long gone, hopefully the next mayor and city council persons and community stakeholders will always think, how can we use this model as a way to solve a problem that seems to be uh, unsolvable, you know, uh, that has a very complex set of variables that impact it and impact uh, its existence, but also its solution, if you're going to find it. Mayor Hancock is hopeful that Denver can become a go-to model for other cities. I remember clearly announcing this SIP program and man, the response I got from mayors all over the country. And then of course I spoke in front of mayors about what we were doing. Again, the response I got was like, wow, you know, we had no idea that we could have, we should have thought in those terms. That's a great way to think of this. And hopefully it can be a model. And ultimately, the success of the model depends on the impact it has on the lives of participants. We started this episode by hearing Malcolm talk about the challenges of the instability that comes with homelessness. Well, here he is again talking about how the Pay for Success project has affected his life. On so many different levels, this has changed me, how I see things, how I see life, how I see the future. I have certain aspirations and dreams and there's certain emotional things that I'm going through. But yes, it's, uh, to make a long story short, yes, it's starting to, uh, to, start to feel like home, yes. John is another participant and is especially positive about the program so far. I think this uh, program is totally successful. It's helped me pull myself right off the street, helped me with my uh, self-recognition. I don't, I don't know what you call it. Um, prestige. It's helped me come up from where I was. I feel a lot better about myself. I'm confident, and I can deal with people in the community in a much more positive manner. And uh, it's helped me big time. And finally, here's Maria. After living on the streets for eight years in a brief time in a halfway house, she now has a permanent home in South Denver. Yeah, the biggest and the greatest part is that they never gave up on me. 
they've come and found me a couple times where I wasn't ready to move or I wasn't ready to change. And it's not till you're ready for yourself to change is when that acceptance comes in. And then is when I moved in here. I feel at home apart from my um, immediate family. I feel like I have a whole new family. I got to have a Thanksgiving with my brother and his family. And it was the first Thanksgiving I had in a long time. I do just want to say for the others not to give up. And there is hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel. There really is. Sometimes we get people that look at us like we're nothing. So, but we're something. (laughs) As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here's three things you need to know. One, Denver's Social Impact Bond, or Pay for Success Project, commits outside investors to paying for improved social outcomes that can save the city money. The project aims to help chronically homeless people get in supportive housing and provides key services to help them thrive. And it has the power to change people's lives for the better. Two, other cities facing similar challenges can look to Denver's program for lessons. Everyone in the Social Impact Bond Project stressed that collaboration is key. And so far it's working. Denver has been able to show concrete results that participants are remaining in housing and they're returning to jail at lower rates than those not in the program. And three, Denver worked with the Urban Institute closely to shape this program around evidence and evaluation. And this can feel cumbersome at times, but it can also pay off for the investors, the city, and most importantly, the people they serve. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're interested in learning more about the Denver Project, you can find an amazing feature article on this work at urban.org features. The piece has audio and photography and goes into greater depth about how the whole Denver Project came together. You should really check it out. Again, that's urban.org features. If you like the show, we usually ask you to leave a review. Five stars is great on whatever podcast app you're using. But this time, we're going to ask you to subscribe. So take a couple of seconds, hit the subscribe button. Our episodes drop every couple of weeks, and we'd love for you to stick around for the cool things we have coming up in the future. Thanks to the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, who support the Pay for Success initiative at the Urban Institute, a project that I lead, and provided resources for the development of this episode. You can find out more about the initiative's work at pfsi.urban.org. Huge thank you to our producer, Katie Smith, our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co, that's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O, and the rest of the Urban team who helped on the Denver feature and this podcast. We had such a great group that included Emily Pfeiffer, Veronica Gaetan, and Katrina Ballard. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.